Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few moments out of your podcast uh, just to ask you to uh, think about um, making a donation to continue allowing us to produce Where We Live and uh, bring it to you every day. Uh, the number to donate is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Think about the content that you hear on this station and specifically on this program, where each day we work hard to keep you connected to your community, to the issues that matter most to the people in your backyard. If that is something that you value, we hope you'll support it today. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure, and it's so appreciated by us. one 800 or online at wnpr.org, and thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Most of us shop online. How do you say no to the convenience of next-day delivery, especially with the holidays bearing down on us? E-commerce giant Amazon has largely shaped our shopping habits, but what are the consequences on us? people doing the work, and the larger economy. Today, where we live, we dig in. Coming up, Jason Del Rey will join us. He's senior commerce correspondent at Recode and host of the Vox Media podcast, Land of the Giants. His season one focused on the rise of Amazon. First, what's it like to work for Amazon? You or someone you know may work at one of the two Amazon warehouses or what the company calls fulfillment centers in Connecticut. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest worked for Amazon in December of 2015 after being laid off from her job as senior staff writer at Philadelphia City Paper. Emily Gindelsberger is joining me from a studio at NPR's New York City uh, headquarters. Uh, Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I should mention you're author of the book On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. So at first I wanted to find out you know, how you went about first getting the job at Amazon. Well, it was very easy, honestly. During peak, which is what they call the time period between Thanksgiving and Black Friday and Christmas and a little bit afterwards, they really, really, really need extra bodies because Amazon's demand goes up double. So there's not a ton of scrutiny. uh, And they hired tons of people through temp agencies like the one I was there through uh, called Integrity Staffing, which is kind of like a minor subset of Amazon. They appear to do business mostly with Amazon warehouses. So I mentioned that you were laid off. Uh, so you'd always wanted to do a story on Amazon. This was the the perfect occasion. It was the ideal time to do it. That's for sure. I just did not know when I would ever have a chance again to actually go do this for the amount of time that it would be necessary to really understand and get a better idea of what it's like to work there. Of course, I was only there for a month, and it's different if you're there for the long term. But I think with my experience and also talking to tons and tons and tons of my coworkers, both at the warehouse I was at and through people I contacted online, my experience does seem to be something that people recognize as their own. And how did you end up in Indiana working at this particular Amazon warehouse? 
<laughs> well, I was kind of broke, honestly. <laughs> I was working for an alt weekly and I'd just been laid off the month before. I could make the thing at Amazon work for me as long as I didn't have to pay rent on someplace. So somebody talked with their uh, aunt and she was like, hey, that sounds like a cool project. You can come and stay in the spare bedroom. So I'm actually talking to you now during peak, as you described at the time from Black Friday uh, through uh, the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Tell us about the day that you first arrived at this Amazon warehouse and can you describe it for us? I was really excited, honestly. At the time, it was difficult to go visit Amazon warehouses. They've opened them up lately, I think, in response to a lot of bad press. But I had never really seen the inside of one. And people had told me, like, these things are huge. I believe the one that I was working in was 1.4 million square feet of storage space. When you get in there, it just looks crazy that there's something that big. I believe I describe it in the book as, like, it's not big like an object. It's big like a landscape. You sort of walk into this and there's all of these crazy conveyor belts going around and all these yellow totes sort of floating around carrying people's stuff around the warehouse. It honestly looks kind of like something kind of out of Dr. Seuss. And describe the type of jobs that are available and what you ended up being assigned. So anybody who's applying through a temp agency over peak is probably going to end up as either a picker or a packer which I think are generally considered the least desirable jobs at Amazon. I was a picker, which in my generation of warehouse, that means that I actually pushed a cart around these almost infinite-looking shelving systems. They were four stories tall. They just went on in all directions. You could look either way, and it would just stretch on, apparently, to infinity. So that was picking and packing is just waiting for all of the merchandise that pickers go to find out in this shelving system, which we called the mod. They take it off the conveyor belt and put it into a box and uh, send it off. Mm. In your book, On the Clock, you describe uh, the orientation uh, before you started working. This wasn't this uh, leisurely walking back and forth uh, to these bins to uh, gather items that uh, I may or someone I know may have ordered. I mean, you were on uh, the clock for a long time, and it was expected that you had to work quickly. In fact, it was uh, mandated. So my days went about like this every day. My shifts were 6.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., Amazon warehouses, a lot of the time, will do four days at 10 hours a day. At least in my experience, employees liked it better that way. It gave them more days off to uh, deal with childcare and stuff like that. So I would show up at work in the morning at 6.30. You, you logged in. You went to get this scan gun. The scan gun follows you regardless of what job you're doing in the warehouse. It goes with you everywhere. It's involved with everything that you do. For example, here's what I did to pick something. I would scan the yellow bin, which we called a tote. There's barcodes on everything. And it would say, OK, here is the coordinates. And it would give me this string of numerals that denoted where I needed to go into the warehouse and what object I needed to find. And as soon as you scan the bin and you get the object, there's a little bar at the bottom of the screen that starts ticking down however many seconds the algorithm or whatever has calculated that it should take you to walk there and scan the next thing. You scan about four barcodes in the process of picking one item, then sort of starts over again. But all of those steps are timed down to the second. And 
if you don't keep up, you will get somebody coming out to ask why you were not keeping up. And what would happen if a, a worker wasn't keeping up? It only happened to me once, and it was honestly because of a mistake. I was one of the more fit people in the warehouse. I was in certainly a lot of pain, but I think sometimes people imagine Amazon warehouses being staffed by burly young men or something, and it's really not like that at all. It's just normal people, normal people that you would see working a cash register or behind the fast food counter, and a lot of them were a lot older than me. There seemed to be a lot of retirees in my mod. So I would say I was in the top 10% of physical ability to do this sort of work, and it still was really hard for me to keep up. Mm. Uh, I snuck a step counter in, and uh, I averaged between 13 and 16 miles I walked a day. Wow. And so what did that do to your body, Emily? It really hurt. I sometimes get the impression that people think this book is an expose of the three workplaces, only these three workplaces that I worked in. It was Amazon, a call center called Convergis, and a McDonald's. Uh, But really, this is sort of just a description of the system under which most people in America work, this very closely timed, low-paid, de-skilled sort of job where turnover is really high and the experience of work is very bad. I think anybody that you talk to from Amazon, regardless of the way they feel about the job, would tell somebody who's coming to work at Amazon for the first time, like, regardless of what job you did before this, white collar, blue collar, whatever, the first two weeks, you're going to be really in a lot of physical pain. And I really was. I've had a fairly accident-prone life. (laughs) So I've had a bunch of surgeries and broken bones. I've had a lot of painful things happen to me in my life. But... uh, Honestly, this was the worst I've ever felt, the first three days of picking. And I was taking Advil like every couple hours. I don't even remember how many I was taking at the time. Mm. That can't be uh, healthy to take Advil every couple of hours. But in your book, Emily, you actually uh, mentioned that Advil, other pain uh, medicine over the counter, is readily available in in vending machines at Amazon? Yeah. And I find it really interesting, the sort of disconnect about that fact. The reason that that hadn't been reported before was not that nobody had noticed it. It wasn't because it was really that new. It had already been in place for about a year. It was just that people who work in warehouses do not see that as, you know, as crazy as I think a lot of white-collar workers do. There's a really big split because warehousing work hurts. It hurts no matter where you work. It hurts at Amazon, I think, a little more because they're so, their system is so, so, so good at making you keep up your pace minute to minute. But all warehouse work hurts. Tell me, did you have to pay for uh, that ibuprofen that you were uh, getting? No, uh, it was free. You just had to scan your card and I was really grateful for that pain medicine. A lot of the things that Amazon has gotten dinged for in the media are apparently legitimate but just very wrong-headed attempts to be kind to their workers <laughs> in a weird way. They put the vending machines into effect the previous year, as a manager told me, because too many warehouse workers had uh, all bottled up at Amcare, which was the on-site medical office, and almost all of them just wanted to get more Advil, like they'd run out of Advil or Tylenol or whatever they were using to help them continue this job. 
their solution to this problem was not, okay, maybe we are overworking people. Maybe we should increase the number of breaks. Maybe we should decrease the pace so people aren't so obviously at their physical limit. Maybe we lighten the load a tiny bit. That was clearly off the table, right? No slowing down was going to happen. No lightening of the load was ever going to happen. So what they come up with is, if we can't do that, we'll at least give them free pain medicine like, and help them to constantly go beyond their physical limits. I should remind listeners that you were working at this Amazon warehouse back in 2015. Do we know if there have been any changes uh, to uh, what it's like to pick or pack at an Amazon warehouse, Emily? Yeah, there have. I've actually been to visit one of the new models lately. The one that I went to work in, I specifically went to work in because it was one of the newer ones at the time. It had opened in, I believe, 2014, which was the previous year. So it was fairly state-of-the-art at the time. But now uh, Amazon has really started. They're one of the big drivers of uh, roboticized automation. One of the things that's really different about picking now, it's stationary. You no longer... In new warehouses, uh, you don't push the cart around. Basically, robots bring the shelf to you. They're these big orange, they kind of look like little Roombas. They're kind of cute. And they lift the shelf up. They go underneath it, lift it up, and carry it over to a station where a picker is standing. You stand all day. You stand for every job in the warehouse. You do not sit down at all. The worker still has to either climb up a little ladder usually or squat down, which was another part that was sort of difficult to describe about how physically stressful the job was. It wasn't just all of the walking. It was that, you know, a third of the time you were doing a full squat to get something out of a low drawer. And (laughs) when you're doing hundreds of those a day, it gets really, really rough on your legs and your hips. Uh, My guest is Emily Gindelsberger. She's a journalist who wrote the book On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. For about a month, uh, Emily worked at an Amazon fulfillment center or warehouse uh, in Indiana back in 2015, and we're talking with her about her experience. Uh, You mentioned that uh, your book is not an expose on Amazon or some of these other companies that you worked at, including McDonald's, but you really want to give uh, readers an idea of what it's like for many Americans who work in these low-wage jobs. Uh, Talk more about some of the people that you met who uh, they might have had another warehouse job and then Amazon came in. And how did they see uh, their workday change? One of the easiest examples is Zappos. Amazon took them over, the, the shoe company. Zappos, uh, until that point, had had this very lenient, isn't exactly the right word, but it had this very collegial atmosphere. Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos at the time, had this mindset that people should want to be there, and they tried to make the experience of work pretty good for their workers. And I met several people who had worked at Zappos before they were bought by Amazon and after, and They said it was just night and day. Zappos may not have been the most perfectly efficient thing before, but it was a place where they offered people uh, every year a lump sum of money to leave the company, Mm. like a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks, which that is no small thing. 
uh, a lot of people you would think would take that. But most people ended up passing on the money. This woman, Katie, who I lived with, she had worked at Zappos, and she said that they had tried to make things fun for them. When they had to work overtime, they'd get pizza. There was time to get to know your colleagues, get to talk with them. You actually got to socialize a little bit. Whereas one of the hardest things for me about Amazon was how totally isolating it was. That was the thing that really caused me to almost walk out a couple times. <laughs> the pain was real and the pain was really hard, but that was not ever going to make me quit. But the boredom and monotony and again, like the algorithms that plot your path when you're walking around these shelves, they tend to keep you away from other workers partially because the shelves a lot of the shelves are only one cart's width wide so they're trying to avoid traffic jams it has the side effect of if you never see anybody out in the mud you're not going to stop and chat and waste time and all of that so it got very very lonely from Connecticut Public Radio this is where we live i'm Lucy Nalpathanchel my guest is Emily Gindelsberger a journalist who wrote the book on the clock what low wage work did to me and how it drives america insane We'll continue our conversation after the break, and you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Where We Live, the podcast. It does take a lot of work, as Lydia and I both know, to put together a show like this with so many different voices and and coming to you be a part of supporting that. The number to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. We are so happy to have you listening to this podcast. We found that oftentimes people don't even realize that it exists. They just think that we (laughs) broadcast between 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 and 8 p.m. But the reality is that you can go online and listen at any time of day at your convenience. It's there for you, and we hope that you'll support it as well. Again, that number, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. Go online to wnpr.org. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure, and thank you so much in advance. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Emily Gindelsberger, worked at an Amazon warehouse in 2015 during the holiday shopping season known as Peak. She wrote about her experience in her book On the Clock. In it, she details working long days, frequent pain, and isolating work conditions. We reached out to Amazon to get a local perspective on the show since the company has two fulfillment centers in Connecticut. Instead, the company issued a statement saying in part, simply put, People would not want to work for Amazon if our working conditions truly were, as our critics portray them to be in this period of record low unemployment and plentiful job opportunities. I asked Emily, who was a temporary worker in an Indiana warehouse, how many of her fellow temps made it through the entire holiday season. It's really hard to say, but people that I talked to, and I would say this is what I observed in in my own mod, said that the turnover is completely bonkers for temps. I started on December, I think it was December 2nd or 3rd, and by Christmas, I only recognized five people out of the 50 that were there when I started. 
other people who were there longer than me said they thought it was like a 99% turnover rate. Mm. I wanted to ask of the people that remained at Amazon who went from, I guess, the, the temp's white badge, as you described, to the to the blue badge, uh, where uh, maybe uh, the work, uh, I don't know if, what the incentive was once he hit the blue badge. If you could describe that first to Emily. Well, the blue badge, uh, blue badge means you're an official Amazon employee. They call them Amazonians, uh, mm-hmm. which is a term that I refuse to use. <laughs> um, but, you know, you get health insurance, which I was told was comparatively good for what else you could get in the area. You were paid a little bit more and you at the time got stock options. I believe with the raise to $15 an hour, you no longer get stock options as an employee. But a lot of people really wanted that. And I would imagine, especially since it's gone up to 15 an hour, that a lot of people are still willing to put up with how difficult and boring and exhausting and monotonous uh, and kind of soul crushing that job is. And if uh, they didn't have that particular job at that warehouse in Indiana, what else was there for people in that local economy, Emily? Not much. I talked to... One woman who said she drove an hour each way to get there because she was from a rural area. I believe we were making 11 bucks an hour, and that was a lot more than you could make at the gas station in her town or the pizza place in her town or whatever. She said the money made it worth it. A lot of the reason Amazon is able to squeeze people so hard is there really are not that many other options for people. You know, Amazon is, of course, back in the news when uh, we hear investigative reports, such as from Reveal, about work conditions at these fulfillment centers. Also, thinking about Amazon being the, the second largest employer in the United States, a trillion-dollar company that gets to take advantage of uh, corporate welfare and incentives. Some people see Amazon and the future um, as part of uh, this trend of a uh, job destruction that robots will be taking over. And then people uh, such as uh, that area in Indiana may not be able to find that kind of work, again, that pays uh, as much as $15 an hour. And so thinking about, uh, again, your book uh, came out recently, but this, again, was your experience back in 2015. You know, what do you want people to think about as we continue to look at this future of e-commerce, of companies like Amazon uh, really having a monopoly? Well, for one, I'd like to challenge the robots are taking over statement. What's happening is that bosses are automating away jobs. Mm -hmm. Now it's robots instead of, I don't know, sending them to Mexico or China or putting kiosks in a McDonald's so that you don't have to have as many workers. It's all the same drive. Well, Amazon is investing more in robotics. Yeah, there's a company, Kiva, that they bought recently. And so when we think about uh, a lot of the scrutiny that Amazon gets for conditions in their warehouses, I think I had heard another podcast by uh, Jason Del Rey, who looked at the rise of Amazon, uh, talking about right now, robots can't pick like a human can. But at no. some point, if there is uh, advancements, uh, what does that mean for the future of work? Amazon is one of the biggest drivers of automation in the entire world. And to be honest, that is exactly what I see the $15 an hour thing as. Henry Ford actually did something very similar back in 1913 when he debuted the the first assembly line. People, they hated working on the assembly line because they lost control of the pace of work. They lost a lot of the pleasure that they used to take in work. 
it's kind of satisfying to to build stuff, to make stuff with your hands. And Henry Ford, in addition to structuring work as an assembly line, he also developed a ton of these very, very easy to use tools instead of relying on skilled workers. Henry Ford, because he was only making at first the Model T, it was all standard. He made all of these like a drill with 40 bits, and it would just automatically drill all 40 holes once you pushed a button. And he said he wanted all of these things to be able to be done by a child of three. At first, he could not get people to work there at all. And that's why he started the famous $5 day, which was almost double what you could get in factories uh, in Detroit at that time. He did that because he couldn't get people to stay because they hated it so much. Part of the reason that Ford started paying the $5 was that it also was going to sort of cripple his competition in that they were also going to need to raise their pay to keep up with him. But he knew that he was so far ahead of them on automation that he would soon be paying $5 a day to a very small number of people, whereas they would be stuck paying four fifty a day or something to a large number of people, and they would be really screwed when that happened. And that's absolutely what I see uh, as happening with Amazon. And these calls for other places to also be, you know, cool and decent and raise their wages to $15 an hour. I don't disagree. Yeah, like there should be $15 an hour. Everywhere should pay a living wage. But if you're chalking it up to Jeff Bezos being like a nice dude or something, it's not that. <laughs> uh, what's been the reaction to your book, Emily? There's sort of this divide. People who have and who tend to come from uh, wealthier backgrounds and tend to have not had a service job in a very long time, they are shocked and appalled by what I describe in the book. Mm. Their definition in their head of what a good job is or what a worthwhile job is or what you know, proper compensation for hard work is, is really different from probably half the country's understanding. Those people are not surprised. Like when I'm on shows like this, I sometimes will get callers who mm. sort of mistake the message, I guess, that I'm trying to get across. They seem to take it somehow as I'm elitist or I'm naive, which I mean, yeah, I'm, I was pretty naive because I haven't had one of these jobs in a little while. But what you need to know is that all of the people who are making decisions about how you do your job and how hard you have to work and what compensation you get in exchange for that are being made by people that absolutely do not understand what you do all day and how hard you work and how difficult they make it for you. You know, some people who read uh, your book, specifically when we're talking about Amazon, uh, may think, you know what, I don't want to give my uh, money to Amazon. I don't want to be a Prime member if that's how they treat their workers. But do you think that uh, when we think about worker conditions that there's too much emphasis on what consumers should do and not enough on what the government should do, Emily? Oh, yes. <laughs> Relying on a voluntary consumer-driven boycott of Amazon is not going to work. What people need in order to get fair compensation and not worked to death in these miserable jobs is unions. We need to make it much easier to form and join unions and to support unions. And we need a lot of regulatory action on the way that companies are allowed to treat their workers and the burden of stress that they're allowed to place on people. Emily, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me. That was Emily Gindelsberger, a journalist and author of On the Clock. Despite attention on Amazon's workplace practices, millions of us shop Amazon for anything and everything imaginable online. What trends is the e-commerce giant weighing as it continues to dominate the marketplace? Jason Del Rey, host of the Vox Media podcast, Land of the Giants, joins us after the break to answer that question and more. First, it's our end-of-the-year fun drive. Where We Live brings you a wide variety of conversations. Please support this show and Connecticut Public with the Pledge of Support. Here's the number to call. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, the holidays are expected to be a season of joy. But it's a difficult time of year if you've experienced the death of a loved one. On the next Where We Live, we talk about grief. We hear from a widow and we talk with a grief counselor, too. How should you respond to the people around you who are grieving? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. That's Monday. Now, earlier we heard from journalist Emily Gindelsberger about her experience working in an Amazon warehouse. My next guest spent the last six years reporting on Amazon, the e-commerce industry, and how technology is transforming brick-and-mortar retail. Jason Del Rey is also the host of Land of the Giants, a podcast series, and the first season focused on the rise of Amazon. Jason Del Rey is also senior commerce correspondent at Rico, joining us today from a studio, NPR studio in New York City. Jason, welcome. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So we heard Emily uh, Gindelsberger earlier describing uh, her experience back in 2015. Uh, We now know, and through your reporting as well, that there are more automated Amazon fulfillment centers around the country where you have uh, robots uh, essentially bringing items from a shelf to a worker, and then the worker is picking through and scanning. Uh, This might save miles of walking. Uh, But I'm curious if you could talk more about Amazon's plans for automation and what that means for the future of its workforce, the people. Sure. So, So as you said, the robots that are in the facilities today do in some ways make the jobs easier for workers. There's not the 13 or 16 miles of walking, like Emily said, in these facilities. But these workers are expected to do more faster. So there's there's that piece. Um, going forward in the future, Amazon is adding more of these robots to its warehouses. It's also inventing and trying to invent new types of robots that perhaps one day may be able to do the picking or another role that's called the stowing. And so that, that just opens up all sorts of questions about what is the number two private employer in the U.S. So how many people actually, how many Americans um, are employed by Amazon? And, and if you um, get these robots that are able uh, to be better at picking, so to speak, what does that mean in terms of job loss of the people that are doing the work now, Jason? Sure. So the number's a little fuzzy, but um, somewhere around two hundred to 250,000 uh Americans are working inside Amazon's fulfillment network or its warehouse network. Um, And the question about what happens when they finally solve the problem of essentially replicating the human hand, um, which sounds crazy, but it's probably only five to 10 years off. um, That's something that Amazon is not talking a lot about, but internally, they're definitely thinking about it. And so one thing they announced recently Um, was that they're going to, over the next 10 years, what they call upskill 100,000 workers. Now, it's not only warehouse workers, but but there will be warehouse workers that will be offered sort of skill training to allow them to move into um, jobs that require sort of more skills that they might not 
have. And so the subtext there that Amazon won't say is that it's pretty clear they know jobs are going to go away and, you know, give them credit that in some way they're trying to get out in front of that. So what does that mean for uh, the other players in the e-commerce industry, uh, Jason? Also, I mentioned you have focused on what's been going on with brick-and-mortar retail. Uh, you know, It doesn't sound like it's a good time for people who don't have particular skills to be able to find work unless they're one of the lucky ones that get these upskilled training. Right. So what, what Amazon's uh, acquisition that you briefly mentioned of this company called Kiva Robotics, uh, Kiva Systems, uh, several years ago did was force all these other retail companies um, to look at automation as well. And so there was this boom of robotics companies uh, that are trying to serve all of Amazon's competitors, essentially. Um, and what they'll say is these companies will say they're still having trouble finding employees to take these roles, enough employees, especially during peak holiday season. And so that the move toward automation is not about job elimination, but frankly about just being able to keep up with consumer habit shift uh, from brick and mortar shopping Mm -hmm. to online shopping. Um, Now, we know unemployment rates are really low. So, you know, there, there's some disconnect between the stats we know and what companies are saying. But I think part of that is just the fact that these are, you know, as Emily explained, um, these are not jobs that most people would choose if they had many options. Um, but, you know, a lot of people around the country have few options. And so this is what they end up turning to. You focused on how uh, Amazon continues to dominate. The latest is we are seeing these zippy little vans in neighborhoods, Amazon delivering the items themselves. Uh, What does that mean uh, for uh, uh, shipping carriers like FedEx, UPS, even the U.S. Postal Service? Yeah, it means that um, no industry is safe from Amazon and sort of the logistics and shipping industry for sure uh, is is one of them that would fall into that category. So about in 2013, Amazon had a really tough holiday season where um, some of their shipping partners like UPS were overwhelmed by Amazon deliveries. There, were, there was also bad weather in, in uh, many parts of the country that winter. And so Amazon had a lot of late deliveries and they decided from that point forward that they would uh, not let that happen again. And what that meant to them internally was they're going to start building their own network, uh, shipping and delivery network. Now, what they've done is they really outsource to contractors a lot of these deliveries. They help small businesses start up delivery companies. And then they basically just give them uh, – these companies are, are separate companies, but all the deliveries they're doing are for Amazon. And so um, on one hand, Amazon is not taking the liability that comes with um, you know potential crashes that we've uh, seen reported on and uh, you know medical insurance for these employees of other companies. But at the same time, they are taking uh, – sort of supply away from the UPSs, the FedExs, the USPSs. And um, these these companies are kind of in a catch-22. You, they need Amazon's business today, but they know where these, this is headed with Amazon already handling around 50% of all of their own U.S. deliveries. 
Wow. Jason Del Rey is with us from a studio, NPR studio in New York. He's senior commerce correspondent at Recode, also host of the Vox Media podcast, Land of the Giants. I definitely recommend this to our listeners. Uh, season one, focusing on the rise of Amazon. Uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, we hear a lot about uh, Amazon being a trillion dollar company. Again, this idea of them dominating uh, so much of not just uh, e-commerce, but now we're hearing logistics as well. But most of us really like the convenience. Uh, Jason, we pay that $119 a month. We get our stuff that we want uh, pretty quickly. It doesn't seem like Americans are going to be able to quit Amazon anytime soon. Yeah, I I think counting on uh, consumers, and I think Emily made this point as well, counting on consumers to change their shopping behavior when they have in front of them (laughs) perhaps the most convenient shopping experience ever, not for every type of product, but for many uh, everyday staples. Um, is just not realistic. You will get on the fringe, you will get people who hear stories of warehouse workers um, uh, not being treated well and and may change their shopping habits. But if you're locked in like many families are, I think, you know, half of American households now, their estimates are are prime members. Um, If you're locked into that ecosystem, it's really hard to break out. And that is intentional from Amazon. They keep loading perks into the Prime program. Um, They've really changed consumer psychology when it comes to, um, you know, feeling locked into sort of uh, a consumer ecosystem. And then they get some uh, fallout when there's bad weather, as we had earlier in the month, and these deliveries aren't coming on time. People expect it no matter what. They do. I mean, the the prime promise, which started as um, two-day uh, shipping, and now Amazon has shifted, uh, is in the process of shifting uh, many millions of products to one-day shipping. I mean, it has created, um, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm in this group, but it's still kind of sad that it's created this um, I-need-it-now culture um, that is, is just super prevalent and, again, uh, hard to snap out of. And so uh, Walmart, for example, and other big retailers, uh, they now need to deliver in two, two days just to, you know, be a feasible alternative. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know when it stops, you know, next minute delivery perhaps. You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, Amazon, the rise of Amazon. Uh, uh, Jason Del Rey, again, uh, reporting on Amazon for the last six years. Our number, 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. We all love convenience, but have you ever thought about Amazon's business practices and uh, this idea that they really are uh, dominating uh, the marketplace? Uh, we want to hear from you. You know, I am curious, um, as we hear about um, uh, more automation in Amazon, on fulfillment centers or warehouses, there has been attention on that doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, uh, helping workers. There's more uh, rate of injuries, according to this reveal investigation. That's right. So um, it was a fantastic investigation that uh, basically um, did what a lot of investigations and reports about Amazon warehouse work has not, which is gotten actual hard data on injury rates. And they did that in a unique way by having employees, Amazon employees and former employees uh, request that information, which uh, under law, they, they have a right to see. And so, you know, what they found is the, the rate of injury is, um, I think, at a minimum, two times 
sort of the uh, average rate for that work. And um, Amazon's response was um, pretty original. I'm, I, I don't know uh, whether I fully believe it, but that the, the reason why these rates are higher is because Amazon is more aggressive in reporting injuries at their facilities than the average uh, retailer or warehouse company is. Um, that's really hard to prove, um, but that 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 was what they came back with. Um, if you talk to workers, they will say, and, and I've talked to many over the years in both old facilities and new, um, you, they'll say across the board, this is, this is really hard work. Yes, that's what warehouse work is. Um, one question is whether Amazon should do better than the average. Um, and I know in this case, the, the, the injury rates are actually worse than average. Um, but should we expect more from Amazon because of who they are and how much the consumer experience is wonderful, but um, how they maybe fail us or disappoint us on the, on the back end? And so that's something that I think will continue to get attention over the next few years. Attention from a government? I mean, we're hearing a lot from presidential candidates talking about automation, but in terms of regulating companies like this, uh, Jason, uh, where does that stand? What trends do you think you may, we may see in the next year or two? Yeah, so I'm spending an increasing amount of time in Washington, D.C., um, talking to both lawmakers and regulators as they look into these, you know, all the big tech companies. Um, so Congress, the House the House has a subcommittee that has been investigating and holding hearings on the big tech companies, including Amazon. Um, they are saying they will, in the new year, um, reveal a, a report on their findings on, on sort of anti-competitive behavior, whether they found some, and perhaps try to introduce legislation although um, it's not clear whether that'll go anywhere in this administration. Um, and then the Federal Trade Commission is also investigating Amazon. Um, I've talked to competitors of Amazon who have been asked questions by um, staff at the FTC. And so I I'm not sure exactly what will happen, but I will tell you the momentum in D.C. is there. I think the, the open hearings that the House committee has been having about the tech giants and how they do business, um, both with their, uh, you know, in terms of their employees, competitors, and the sellers on Amazon's marketplace, that is putting extra pressure on regulators. And I would not be shocked to see some action in the next year. What, what, what form that will take? Um, I'm not sure. And uh, just before we go, uh, we still see uh, states and, and regions kind of jockeying to see if Amazon will come uh, to their area. Uh, some of our listeners uh, really uh, get angry when they think about uh, corporate welfare going to a company like Amazon. Uh, you see the tide turning there, especially when we looked at what happened in the New York area. People didn't want to see incentives going to Amazon. They ended up coming without those. They did, though, um, at, at, at a smaller scale uh, and in not sort of the area of New York City that some would argue um, sort of needed them more. Um, but I do think that more and more politicians, uh, sort of si big city officials and state officials are talking to each other to try to break this chain of competing against one another. And we'll have to leave it there. Jason Del Rey, host of the Vox Media podcast, Land of the Giants. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Jason. My pleasure. Today's show produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Please support Connecticut Public Radio with a call of support. Here's the number to call. <laughs>